I'm Julie Hyde, and I believe you can't be a leader of others until you are a leader of self. It all starts with leading you. So if you are ready to be the best leader that you can be, you're in the right place. I'll be chatting to a diverse range of leaders who will spill the beans on their leadership, how they changed the game, insights into their mindset, and how they built the courage and resilience to be a modern leader with impact. Let's get into it. Cassandra Goodman is with me today and she is the founder of the Centre for Self-Fidelity, author of two books and her aspiration is to enable busy, big-hearted people to reconnect their true nature at work. So welcome, Cassie. Thank you, Julie. I'm very excited to be here. It's so good to have you and congratulations on your new book, Being True, How to Be Yourself at Work. And that's what we're going to chat about today. Wonderful. So to jump into it, what was your experience in losing yourself as a leader? Great question. Well, I had to think about this question actually because I feel like I lost myself even before I became a leader. I would call myself a leader in the corporate world for, you know, many decades having spent time leading teams. But prior to that as a little girl, I think I lost my way actually in my formative years. As many, uh, I think, high-achieving people do, I at some point decided to attach all of my self-worth to my achievements instead of to who I was. And so I think this experience of losing myself or losing connection to who I really am at my core and losing kind of faith and trust in that as being enough really started as a young girl when when I started to really identify with this persona of being a high-achieving, low-maintenance machine. That part of me was in the driver's seat for the probably first 20 years of my leadership journey and caused me a great deal of suffering and to show up in ways that didn't reflect who I really was. That part of me comes with a lot of unhealthy striving and proving, perfecting and pleasing and fitting in the patterns we know well. And so, yeah, that that's really how it began for me. And when did you recognise that? Like when did it just become really obvious to you that it's like, hey, this is not who I am or this is just not serving me? There were lots of hints along the way. You know, I do remember having this distinct feeling like I was living on a roller coaster ride. And I now know that was the roller coaster ride of low self worth. Because, of course, when we hitch our sense of self worth to anything external, then there's so many ups and downs, right? And so when my job was going well, when I was top talent or receiving, you know, awards and all the other things I wanted to, to do, then I was high as a kite. But when things weren't going well, perhaps I missed out on that award or my project was off track or my, my manager wasn't giving me glowing feedback, then I would plummet. So I think there was this ongoing realisation that, that I was kind of being propelled by a force that was kind of out of my control that wasn't really healthy, that my drive for performance wasn't coming from a really healthy place and wasn't really sustainable. So I had that feeling for quite a number of years. And I think the the real moment when the penny dropped 
was when I was at a women's leadership retreat and I met a woman who was running the emergency ward of a public hospital here in Melbourne and she kind of confessed to the group with tears rolling down her eyes that she felt like she had no value in the world. And that was the moment I thought, oh, my gosh, if you're not where I'm desperately trying to get to, if you don't feel like you have value in the world and you're saving lives and, you know, there's no corner office, there's no promotion, there's no company car that's going to get me. And I think that was a realized moment I realized that I had to find a different way, a different kind of fuel source, if you like, that I could draw on and something that was more sustainable and more healthy and really that fuel source I now would say is this understanding that who I am at my core is enough and this connection to my essence is really the thing that I feel I draw on now in my work and which is far more sustainable, far more gentle and far more congruent with who I really am. Yeah, I really resonate with your story because I think on a, you know, similar but different, I really attach my self-value to people-pleasing pleasing others. So, you know, really wanting others to be happy with me and then if they were happy, I was great. So I would change who I was depending on who I was with and really lost my way (laughs) until I thought, God, who am I? I'm sure if I got lots of people in a room, they'd be very confused by who I was. So have you identified identified a key, you know, reason as to, you know, why do we lose our authentic self? Yeah, well, I'll share my understanding of well, what happened to me and how I've made sense of this thing I did, which was attach my sense of enoughness or self-worth to my achievements. And you know, Dr. Gabor Mate has written extensively about this, and I think he explains it better than anyone, which is, he would say that as young people, we trade off our authenticity for attachment. We have to trade off our authenticity for attachment. That at a certain moment in our formative years, we realize, can I be my full self and stay attached to the people that I need to stay attached to in order to stay alive as a young, vulnerable human? And often, unfortunately, the answer to that question is no. You know, we find ourselves feeling like we have to be more of or less of something in order to maintain these secure attachments to our caregivers. And that's really, I think, where it begins. And for me, growing up in a household where there was a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, uh, my father suffered terribly from work-related stress. I think the thought crystallized in my young mind that if I could become a high-achieving, low-maintenance machine, then perhaps then I would be worthy of the sort of care and love and affection that I was really craving that unfortunately for really valid reasons my parents were not always able to give me. So I think the most succinct way I've heard it described is that we trade off our authenticity for attachment for very legitimate reasons and then we never unlearn those stories, those ways that we decide at a young age that we need to be more of or less of something in order to be worthy. Yeah, okay. In my experience, like when I have worked in corporate and then coaching executives, people feel like they have to be someone different to fit in or to get that promotion or to be able to sit at the boardroom table. So 
When you take people through their work and really enable them to connect back to their authentic self, particularly, you know, be that person in the workplace and have the confidence to be, what then if you or your values conflict with the organisation that you're working with? What happens then? (laughs) What does happen then? Well, I suppose it it depends, you know, it depends on lots and lots of factors. I I recently heard the singer-songwriter Jewel talk about what happens to us when we attempt to tolerate the intolerable. And, you know, there's lots of research that would tell us that when we attempt to tolerate the intolerable for long periods of time, we get sick. We're not activating our full potential. We put our physical and mental health at risk and and we're certainly not engaged in our work and we're certainly not bringing the best versions of ourselves to the workplace. And yet we all live in the real world with very real financial pressures and the cost of living is going up and mortgages, school fees, blah, blah. You know, it's not as simple as just say, well, this workplace is not congruent with my true values. I'm going to pull up stumps and find somewhere (laughs) that is. It's never that simple, right? And and the interesting thing that when I coach leaders in that situation, when they realize that their workplace is incompatible with thriving for them long-term, even when people have a lot of financial security too, there's, there's something that causes us to stay or causes us to panic. And we say it's about money, but normally with a little bit of digging, it quickly emerges that it's not really about the money, that actually financially we do have perhaps a six-month runway if we manage our costs and we could take our time with finding uh, a workplace that's more compatible with thriving. Often it's these high-achieving parts of ourselves that, that are panicking. If I'm not this high-achieving executive, then who the heck am I? And I can't possibly slow down to figure that out because what if when I figure out who I am, I don't even like myself? So uh, I think there's no simple answer. I think if any of your listeners are finding that they're in a place where at the end of the day they they just don't love or even like who they're being at work because of this pressure to conform or to hide or suppress really important aspects of ourselves. I've been told directly at at one workplace, the problem with you, Cassie, is that you care too much. If you want to become a senior executive around here, you've got to learn how to care less. It's a good example of pressure we have to betray very valuable, important aspects of self. So if you're in that situation, I, I think the question is at what cost? What is the cost for you to stay at all levels of your vitality and well-being and potential? And what plans can you put in place to find yourself a workplace that's more congruent with who you really are that's going to amplify rather than dull and diminish your potential and put a plan in place to do that and not to wait too long because I'm sure you've seen that happen too, Julie, that that these high achievers, including myself, we stay and we stay and we stay and we stay. We convince ourselves that we're somehow immune because of we're resilient and we've got grit, which is not true. We're not immune. And when we finally leave and hit the job market, we're, we're so depleted that we end up settling or blowing that interview because we're no longer healthy. So, yeah, there's a few thoughts. Of course, no easy answers, but they're some of my thoughts. Yeah, no, they're great because um, often you need to work through with people the fact that they love what they do. 
and they love the people that they're working with and they're like, well, I shouldn't be the one that has to go just because I want to be myself at work. It should be the leaders that change. But, of course, the only person you can control is you and therefore you have to make a choice, like you say, because it's not sustainable. And I've seen so many people get so sick, mentally unwell, because they're just pushing and pushing and pushing themselves to, as you say, put up with it. And the human body, the human mind cannot sustain that kind of stress. Yes, we can't. Though we like to convince ourselves we can, right? And a lot of high-achieving people soldier on and on top of that we have the conditioning right you you soldier on you take a codule and if that's not enough have a glass of wine at night and tough it up (laughs) you know that's the message we get and so yeah I was talking to someone just very recently who was in a really difficult workplace environment where she was not psychologically safe she's got 23 documented examples of injuries she sustained at the hands of a leader that had lost complete connection to who they really were and she stayed and she stayed and she stayed until finally she realized she could no longer go back in and she just told me recently she went to a job interview and she had a panic attack I think it hits us hard, right? And I'm sure as I have, you've coached people, Julie, who've experienced burnout. And we know that it's not just a long weekend that we need to recover from a full experience of burnout. We're looking perhaps at three or six months of rejuvenation, repair and and nourishment and, and rebuilding of strength. And so I do think these early warning signs and there's a great piece of content from the Mayo Clinic that I I can send you to share, the early warning signs of burnout, paying attention to these signs when, when the wear and tear of these environments is taking its toll and taking proactive action while we're still healthy and we're still able to exercise a full range of choices and we have full optionality and we're able to present at interviews in a way that reflects our, our expertise uh, and our experience is, is also an important factor. Yeah. Can you share a couple of tips for those who are looking to connect back to who they authentically are? Because I think there are a lot of people who are a little lost in that space and who feel very disconnected because of the busyness and everything else that's going on and conforming. And Yes, and it can be scary, you know, this work of, of cultivating a sense of enoughness or self-worth that comes from inside us that's internally referencing rather than externally referencing can be really scary, you know, that initial kind of leap of faith that, okay, I need to kind of switch fuel sources here because, you know, my own experience is, you know, being driven by that high-achieving part of me was a powerful propellant it really propelled me to great heights in my career, but it was heavily polluting. It wasn't sustainable. And in many ways, it wasn't compatible with what I would call empathetic, courageous, curious, compassionate leadership, because it was all about me trying to prove myself. So, you know, that idea, but wait a minute, I've, this energy, this drive within me, this constant need to prove myself has been my primary source of compulsion here what, what do you mean I've got to switch it up what if I just fall to a lazy heap and not want to do anything so 
It takes a leap of faith to say, no, I, I can start to gain access to this energy source that comes from within me. I can start to build more awareness of who I am at my core, that it is actually not enough to love what we're doing unless we also love who we're being while we do it. And that those two things are equally important. You know, we're, t- we're told just focus on love what you do, but not many people are talking about, do you love who you're being? And in my experience, they're equally important. And that's hard to love or even like who we're being if we're not being ourselves. And so what does it mean to be yourself? Who are you being when you're, when you're being your most authentic, imperfect self? What are those qualities? What are the characteristics of you? You know, another put another way, how does the very best of human nature blend and express itself through you in a one-of-a-kind way? Put some language around that, become familiar with that and start really kind of cultivating and rekindling that essence because often some of these aspects of ourselves are kind of turned down to pilot light setting or locked away for safekeeping. So in my book, I offer up five different practices that we can use to start building awareness of our unique essence, tapping into our essence as an energy source, while also starting to understand and ultimately lead the parts of ourselves, like my high achieving part, that can sometimes block access to that core of who we are. Mm, I like that. I know you talk a lot about playfulness too. Is that something that you get people to think about? It's like, you know, what are you doing when you feel most happy or joyful or, you know, that that you're having fun? Yeah, I mean, coming back to what brings us joy and what makes us happy can be a simple kind of entry point to some of these practices, right? Because many people have forgotten what that is. And, you know, having worked for so many years in corporates, you know, we're also conditioned to believe that work is the opposite of play. And that's just a big fat lie. The The opposite of play is actually depression, not work, <laughs> depression. And so, rekindling our playfulness can be a really beautiful place to start because this whole body of practice, if you like, this whole opportunity to learn how to lead ourselves, build relationships with our parts, to reconnect with our core, understand the sharp edges that that we bring, you know, this is work best engaged with a sense of lightness and play, you know, and so rekindling our playfulness and, and kind of unlearning some of those misconceptions that to be playful is to be naive or to be playful is to be childish. It is to be childlike, but but that's not a bad thing, right? And so, yeah, I've been lucky to study with Dr. Stuart Brown, who runs the National Institute of Play in the US. I recently spoke to him on my podcast. He's now in his 90s. And Dr. Stuart Brown has taught me a lot about our innate need to play, that our need to play is as important as our need for food, water and shelter. And yet so many of us have kind of suppressed our innate playful nature. Yeah, 100%. So I look forward to hearing that podcast. Cassie, thank you so much for being a guest on the Leading You podcast. And I know people are going to get so much value from that. Our time has gone so fast. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Julie. 